Okay. Well, shall we pray together as we uh, begin this study? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we do just thank you for this day that you've set aside for us to gather together and to think about uh, your word, and especially as we think about um, this uh, paragraph within our confession that is especially to do with your word and how we are to hold to it, how we are to confess it, how we are to view it. And Lord, I pray that as we consider these things and as we begin this series going through our 1689 confession, Lord, that you would keep our um, minds alert, that you would keep our hearts soft, and Lord, that we would be um, progressing in a way that glorifies you and is edifying to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as I mentioned uh, on Facebook and just a minute ago, we're going to go through, uh, we're doing a short series now, just going through the early chapters of the Confession of Faith, and I have, we haven't quite decided how long we'll go for, but um, it's been a practice in this church, I think, as far as I know, since the beginning, to um, periodically take uh, sections of our Confession of Faith and go through them systematically as a, as a basis for talking about doctrine. Um, and that's really what the Confession helps us with. It helps us to understand uh, in a condensed, summarised form the leading doctrines of Christianity, the de- leading doctrines of the Bible, um, and they help us as a, an aid to teach these things. But I want to um, give you a little bit of background and introduction to the Confession of Faith Uh, Some things you may know or may have heard before, but uh, it's worth just putting the confession within its historic context to get a sense of its purpose uh, and what it's trying to achieve. So um, does anybody know uh, the date that the confession was published? It is called the 1689 Confession of Faith. (laughs) When do you think it was published? 1689, brilliant. We've got some bright ones. That's good. So, 1689, okay, so we're going back, uh, you know, 300 years uh, over that. Um, So it's it's long, well-established confession, um, and it really has its roots much earlier than that, even, than 1689. There's a few dates that I need to share with you that I think help to tell the story of how the confession of faith that we hold to came about. Uh, So within the era of the Reformation, so we're talking about the 16th century, um, with Martin Luther and John Calvin and all of these famous people, uh, out of that movement, and it was uh, really a global uh, movement, um, out of that movement came a number of different uh, churches, a number of different denominations, Uh, which were relatively unified, unified around the five solas of the Reformation, so scripture alone, uh, faith alone, uh, grace alone, in Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone. Okay, And the word alone in Latin means sola. So these are the five solas of the Reformation. And this put it in contrast to the Roman Catholic Church, who would uh, uh, typically have... Uh, take exception to the the word alone. It's not that the Roman Catholic Church rejects scripture, they just reject scripture as the sole or solar uh, basis of authority. They would have scripture and tradition. 
uh, and they would do the same with uh, the others, though they wouldn't uh, do the same with glory of God because they think that the best way to bring glory to God alone is, is through their particular scheme. Uh, but that would be the unifying five points, if you like, of the Reformation. And there were other points as well. The five points of Calvinism um, would have been a unifying set of doctrines as well, though, of course, the Arminian stream would have obje uh, objected to those. And, um, but largely, there was a great deal of unity uh, among the various denominations that came out of the Reformation. And each of those denominations were, in, uh, to varying degrees and in varying ways, fighting for legitimacy uh, to establish themselves and promote themselves and identify themselves. Uh, and the, the means by which they would fight for this legitimacy varied. Sometimes it was actually a physical fight that, that did happen. That was very unfortunate. Uh, but it would also happen through political means. And it also happened, uh, I think this is probably the main way that it happened, through confessions of faith. So a denomination or a group would, would write a confession or would, would adopt a confession as a way of identifying themselves. Uh, and not just as a way of distinguishing themselves from the other groups. That actually wasn't, I think, the main emphasis. I think the main emphasis, especially when it came to the Reformed Baptists, uh, was actually to demonstrate unity with the other um, denominations within the Reformation. I think that was the main concern, actually, is that the Baptists, they wanted to say that they were Baptists, they wanted to, uh, you know, put, a, put a, um, a red mark beside infant baptism and say, we don't agree with this. But they wanted to say, we do agree with basically everything else. And so we will have a confession of faith that uh, follows a very similar line to many other confessions at the time, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But really, what we're talking about is uh, the denomination that came to be known as the particular Baptists. So there were really three, so, so someone might ask the question, where on earth did Baptists come from? Well, they came from the, the time of the Reformation, and there were really three streams of Baptists. There was the Anabaptists, which probably had a few different substreams within them. Then there were the general Baptists, and then there were the particular Baptists. And particular Baptists get their name from the doctrine of particular redemption, which is the idea that Christ came to die for a particular group of people. So it's Reformed theology, it's Calvinistic theology. So the particular Baptists, which now take the name of Reformed Baptists. Okay? So that is the denomination in which we are. Uh, that's, what, that's the tradition that we're in. And the um, confession of faith that was adopted by the particular Baptist or the Reformed Baptist is known as the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. But there's a few other dates which I think are worth uh, knowing because they tell the story. So um, in 1644, so quite a lot earlier than 1689, you have what's called the first London Baptist Confession of Faith. The 1689 is sometimes referred to as the second London Baptist Confession of Faith. The first London Baptist Confession of Faith was in 1644, and it was written uh, by pastors and other lay people, uh, self-funded and self-organised. Now, it is actually a really good confession. And there are Reformed Baptist churches that hold to 
the first London Baptist Confession and believe that it is superior, or at least equal to, the second London Baptist Confession. It's a really good confession. But I, I bring it up because I want you to realise that there's a history. Good morning. There's a history and there is a, a, a historic pedigree, if you like, to Reformed Baptist theology. It was there right at the start. It was there as other confessions were being written. The Reformed Baptist Confession was being written at the same time as, for example, the Westminster Confession. So the Westminster Confession was published two years later after the uh, first London Baptist Confession. And so the Presbyterians who have the Westminster Confession will say, well, our confession is so much older than yours. And you say, hang on a minute. Two years before the Westminster Confession, we have the first London Baptist Confession. Now, writing it first doesn't make you right, but it's just worth recognising that we are old. We're an old uh, church, old denomination. Okay. So, the first London Baptist Confession. And I would also say this about the first London Baptist Confession. In comparison to the Westminster Confession of Faith, it is not as good. Okay. It's not as... Uh, sharp, it's not as intellectually brilliant, and yet it is very sharp and very brilliant. It is a brilliant uh, confession of faith, the first London Baptist confession of faith. But I would also say this, the first London Baptist confession of faith was written by pastors, self-organised and self-funded. The Westminster Confession of Faith was written by the brightest intellectuals in England at the time, commissioned by Parliament itself that was in power at the time, and it was intended to be the Confession of Faith for England and Scotland. So it had all the might and prowess behind it, and the Baptist Confession of Faith had just a few uh, pastors coming together self-organised and self-funded. And yet, it is still brilliant. The first London Baptist Confession of Faith uh, is phenomenal. So, a um, couple of dates, 1644, the first London Baptist, 1646, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith, of course, went on to become the um, Confession of Faith for the Presbyterian Church uh, and the Church of Scotland. Uh, it was at this time that um, Parliament was hoping that a Presbyterian version of church would be established in England, which is why they wrote it in Westminster, which is in England, um, hoping it would become the standard for the Church of England as well. And of course, as history uh, went on, the monarchy in England was re-established, the Parliament uh, and the Puritan um, wing of things uh, lost its influence and power to a certain degree, and the Anglican Church with the 39 Articles became the basis for the Church of England. Okay, so you don't have to remember all of that, but I'm wanting to give you some context. Uh, ten years later, in 1658, you have another confession that is written called the Savoy Declaration. Now, this is the confession for the Congregational Church. Okay? Now, the Congregational Church is a little bit more Baptist than the Presbyterian Church in that it believes in congregational governance. Okay, so the Presbyterian Church has the elders as the governing body, the presbytery. Um, the uh, congregational church, based on the name, has the congregation as the governing body. Now, Baptists were congregational, 
And so Baptists saw the Savoy Declaration and saw it as a, uh, a wonderful step forward. So the Baptists have still got the first London Baptist Confession, that's their confession at this time from 1644. Then the Westminster comes along and the Baptists are seeing that the Westminster is better. They still disagree with uh, infant baptism, they still disagree with the church government, but they like much of what they see in the Westminster Confession. Then they see the Savoy come along, which is a little bit closer to them, and they like it even more. Okay, this is based on the Westminster Confession, the Savoy Declaration. By the way, um, the Savoy Declaration is 90% in agreement with the Westminster Confession. There's just a bit of change. Okay, are you following me? Then, the Baptists decide um, we want to update or rewrite our confession. So this happens in 1677. Um, this is when, so 1677 is when the second London Baptist Confession of Faith was written and it was published in 1689 uh, and the reason it was published 10 years later in 1689 is because it was illegal to be a Baptist at the time of its writing. Okay. Um, so they waited until it became legal to be a Baptist, which was, happened in 1689. Okay, you're all following me? Okay, there's a lot of information but you'll be fine. You're all clever people. So the Baptists decided, after seeing the Westminster and seeing the Savoy Declaration, uh, and we're talking again 30 years later, so this is, this is not quick decision making, this isn't reactionary um, confession writing. No one's, no one's fighting a war here with their confessions. They did a confession, now we have to do one, now we have to do one. No, it's, not the, it's not what's going on at all. The Baptists had their confession, they were happy with it, they saw the Westminster and loved it. They saw the Savoy and thought, this is even better. Let's do the same thing, but make it Baptist. So they took, with their second London Baptist Confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which with all of its glories, and they took the Savoy Declaration, which was a, um, a tweak on the Westminster Confession, and they came up with the second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Now again, it was to show unity. Because that's, I mean, what's the point of taking someone else's confession and tweaking it? Are you trying to say that we are completely different from you, we want nothing to do with you? No, the opposite. You're trying to say, we agree with you on basically everything, except a couple of things. We just don't agree with your church structure, and we don't agree with your position on baptism. So we're going to change those things, but keep everything else. And so there's this misconception, I think, that doctrine divides and that confessions divide, but actually that was not the purpose of confessions in the uh, Reformation time. The purpose of these confessions certainly was to divide from Rome, but the purpose of these confessions and the way in which they interact with each other is to demonstrate unity, unity between the Reformed Baptists and the Presbyterians, unity between the Reformed Baptists and the Congregationalists. And actually when the General Baptists wrote their confession, which was a little bit after, theirs was not too different from the Second London Baptist Confession. Of course, they changed uh, the things to do with Calvinism and the sovereignty of God and that sort of thing. But they were, again, uh, following suit, trying to maintain as much unity as they could with uh, the other Reformed churches. So any questions about that? What is the name of the General Baptist Confession? Do they have a name? Oh, I don't even know. That's a good question. Probably Google it. Yeah. 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure, sorry. But I, I do know um, that they did base it largely on the, the Reform Baptist, uh, Reform, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Okay. So there's a few takeaways, I think, from this um, history lesson. Um, first of all is that, as I've mentioned, Baptist theology is old. Uh, of course, I would say that it's actually the oldest. <laughs> it goes all the way back to, I think, the first century. Um, but even in its sort of modern uh, understanding, it's at least as old as Presbyterianism. Okay. Um, secondly, confessions uh, unify. That's the purpose of them. They are to unify a body of believers, and they are to show the similarity between that body of believers and other bodies of believers. And the, thir the third thing is, I think, the Baptists have demonstrated um, a real maturity in the way that they have uh, developed and grown. Um, they demonstrated great maturity in putting forward such a quality document in 1644, they demonstrated great maturity in recognising the superiority of the Westminster in many ways. And they demonstrated great maturity in, I think, wrestling with the Westminster Confession for as long as they did before adopting it with, its, uh, with a few changes made to it uh, in um, 1677 and then publishing it in 1689. So it's a strong heritage. And it's a wonderful heritage. And it's this confession that has come out and now is called the 1689 um, has served the Reformed Baptist Church incredibly well. It's been the basis uh, for um, uh, many, many churches. Um, the the Reformed Baptist Churches in the UK uh, have had that as their basis since the beginning. Um, the Reformed Baptist Churches in the UK never really got that big, and one of the reasons for that is because it was illegal to be a Baptist for so long. Um, it was illegal to be anything other than an Anglican for so long in the UK, in, in England rather. Um, and what happens very commonly is uh, Baptists would escape and head off to the New World, which was also now being populated and settled. And so what you have in England is a relatively small Reformed Baptist movement all the way along. But in America, you have exponential growth. Um, the Reformed Baptist denomination within America has been one of the largest uh, since the beginning. And am I right in saying the Southern Baptist, Confession, uh, Southern Baptist Convention historically was Reformed Baptist? You're not sure. It was? Yeah. So the Southern Baptist Confession, I think, is the largest Protestant denomination in America, I think. Um, and it is historically 1689, <laughs> Reformed Baptist. Um, so, of course, many of them have drifted from that since then. It's been the, the basis, the confessional basis for great men like William Carey and uh, Charles Spurgeon. These are men that will be well known and recorded in history books. So it has served us incredibly well, and it's a, a wonderful document to then... Um, oh, we've, we've changed. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Hey, we should change it again before they get over there. No. Yes. Okay. We might have to open those curtains so that doesn't happen again, but that's okay. Um, where was I? 
So, it's a, it's a document worth looking at. It's a document worth exploring. Um, as, I, as I've said a number of times, uh, confessions uh, are incredibly helpful, but we need to understand their role within the church. Um, a confession is not the same as the Bible. Okay? A confession is not the, on the same level as the scriptures. Um, and we need to be careful not to treat it as such. You know, we, we shouldn't go about quoting the confession as if we are settling disputes by quoting the confession. It isn't the confession that settles disputes, it's the, the Bible that settles disputes. Uh, the confession is really just man's best attempt to summarise the leading doctrines of Scripture. Okay? We think it is man's best attempt to summarise the leading doctrines of Scripture. But because it is that, it is a great basis for teaching, it is a great basis for unity, it is a great summary statement of the things that the Bible teaches. Uh, the Bible, there is nothing wrong with the Bible, and there is nothing wrong with confessing the Bible as your confession. Nothing at all wrong with that. The, the, the issue is not with the Bible, the issue is what people do with the Bible. Uh, people, and um, Satan especially, loves to distort the Bible because it is the Word of God, because it is the authoritative base. Um, and because of that, you can have lots of different groups who believe radically different things and yet all claim to believe the same Bible. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the Bible. It's just that Satan loves to distort the Bible. Historically, Satan seems to have been less concerned with distorting confessions of faith because they're not the Bible. They're not the Word of God. And also, if people suddenly started to distort the confession of faith, we would happily abandon it and write a different one. I mean, it's, we're not attached to it as if it's inspired. The purpose of confessions is to say, this is how we read the Bible. We believe this is the right way to read the Bible. And these other heresies we reject. And that's really the context that confessions have been written in all through history. Confessions have been written within a debate that has been sparked because of issues that have come up, and the result has been a confession that clarifies the orthodox position and orthodox interpretation of the scriptures. And that's really what happened in the Reformation time, and that's what happened in, with the 1689 confession as well. And so tremendously valuable and um, worth looking into. A great tool for instruction, instructing your children. If your children are asking a question about the Trinity or the authority of the Bible or baptism or anything like that, you'll find a nice, succinct summary statement within the Confession of Faith. It's a wonderful way to structure uh, courses on doctrine, is to follow a Confession of Faith. It also gives us a, a set of words that we can use in confessing the faith. You see, I think this is something that we, we don't necessarily value as much as we ought to. And that is our responsibility as Christians to confess a faith. That, I mean, that's one of the large motivations behind confessions, is to give you something to confess. Right? The, the theology of confessing, confessing the faith, not theology of confession, but theology of confessing um, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you'll be saved. There are truths that we are required to confess. And, and when I say confess, it doesn't just mean say it out loud. It means joyfully endorse it and live your life in accordance with it. That's what it means to confess something. 
And so one of the motivations behind writing um, the 1689 Confession of Faith is to give us a faith to confess in succinct summary form. Uh, that when we are asked, what do you believe, you can say this, this is what we believe. Um, and it has been very helpful in enabling us to do that. So, shall we turn to the confession? Now, oh, I've got some of these. You guys, uh, is there any spare, are there any spare ones? These are, um, where did they get to? Here we are, Sorry. So there's a bit of background and a bit of intro to the Confession of Faith. Now, we, we're probably not going to get through this whole paragraph, um, but we might get through the first, the first statement, which is actually, in many ways, the most important statement in the paragraph, the most important statement in the Confession itself, actually. Um, but let me just start with this question. Chapter 1, paragraph 1 of A Confession of Faith that you're planning to write, what would you start with? What's your first chapter in your confession? Now, you could actually answer that correctly in a number of different ways, couldn't you? You could say, okay, I'm going to write my first chapter on the doctrine of God. Doesn't that make sense? You know, God is before all things. You know, in fact, that's really where the Bible starts. In the beginning, God. Um, it's the first thing that the Bible says. Or you could start with the doctrine of creation. You could argue that that's where the Bible starts as well. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So you could have your first chapter on creation. You could also make your first chapter the gospel. <laughs> I mean, why not? Start with the good news of Jesus Christ, because that's where people start their own spiritual journey, their own faith uh, walk with the Lord. So you could start there. You know, you could even start with eschatology. How do you do that? Well, you start by laying out the goal of creation. This is where everything is moving towards. This is God's end game, his plan for everything, and now he's working his way towards that. There have been um, systematic theology books that have tried to be a bit quirky and decided to start with eschatology as their first chapter. So you could justifiably do any of that. But the uh, Westminster Confession and the um, Reformed approach to things has always had this as its pattern. To start your first chapter with the doctrine of Scripture. Right? And the reason for that is relatively straightforward. Everything that we confess must come from God. Everything that we say we believe must be based on the revelation of God. It is sola scriptura. Scripture alone. And so, the Scripture starts with a statement on the Scriptures and its foundation for everything else. So let me just read the first statement. It says this, The Holy Scriptures is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge and faith, oh, saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Now that is the most important statement really in the whole confession and it is a summary statement I think of the entire confession everything else that follows follows that statement the holy scripture is the only sufficient certain and infallible rule of all saving knowledge faith and obedience 
Oh, and I was going to say this actually just before we break that down. Um, and we'll break that down as our last thing that we do this morning. But the, the, the chapter on the scriptures follows a very important pattern as well. So if you've got your 1689 confession on your phone or uh, if you've got a hard copy, uh, you'll see that there are, nine, uh, there are ten paragraphs within that um, chapter and they all tick off very important things. So as you go through, you'll see that chapter one uh, is to do, sorry, paragraph one is to do with the sufficiency of scripture. That's the paragraph we have uh, in front of us. Oh, sorry, hang on a minute. Sorry, necessity of scripture. The necessity of scripture, that's paragraph one. Paragraph two and three identify the scriptures, Old and New Testament. Uh, Paragraph four and five are to do with the authority of the scripture. Um, Paragraph six is the sufficiency. Paragraph seven is the clarity. And clarity is actually very important because what do you hear today from people who have theological disputes? They say, oh, we don't really know what the Bible really teaches about these things. People have been arguing about these things for hundreds of years and we can't really work out what the truth is. Well, the, the um, confession wants to say, actually, the main things are plain. Uh, the things that the scripture wants us to know are clear. Not all things are equally clear, but the things that the Lord wants us to know are very clear. Uh, paragraph 8 is to do with the availability of scripture, so an endorsement for translations of the scripture. Paragraph 9 and 10 are to do with how we use the scripture to settle disputes. Paragraph 9 says that the the rule by which we interpret scripture is scripture itself. We don't look to the Pope or the the church or anything else to, or the confession by the way, to um, settle disputes. Uh, We look to the scripture alone to settle disputes about what the scripture means. And paragraph 10 uh, again says the same is on the same line. Okay, so we come to paragraph one, which is to do with the necessity of scripture. Uh, And we see a plain statement, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Now what you need to see in that opening line is the word only and the word rule. You've got the piece of paper in front of you. The word only and the word rule relate to all three of those words. So you could read it like this. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient rule, the only certain rule, and the only infallible rule. Okay. Then, in the next clause, you've got all saving. All saving relating to knowledge, faith, and obedience. All saving knowledge all-saving faith, and all-saving obedience. In other words, they have condensed things down and packed things together, but what they are trying to say is, the only sufficient rule, the only certain rule, and the only infallible rule of all-saving knowledge and all-saving faith and all-saving obedience is the Bible. Does that make sense? Now that's a relatively robust and comprehensive statement, is it not? And one that I think is worth memorising. That will serve you well, I believe, if you memorise it. It is the only sufficient rule, meaning that it is enough. And it is the only thing that is enough. Nothing else is enough, but the Bible is enough. It is the only certain rule, 
There is no other rule that is certain. There may be other things that are helpful, but only one is certain. Uh, certain would be um, a, a word that means the same thing as inerrant. There's nothing in error about this. It is true and without mistake. Uh, and the only infallible rule. Now you might ask, what's the difference between error or inerrant and infallible? Well, this is the difference. If something is without error, it simply means that it hasn't made any mistakes. If something is infallible, it means it cannot make any mistakes. Does that make sense? So I could write something that's inerrant. One plus one equals two. That's inerrant. No errors have been made. But that doesn't mean that what I've said or what I say is infallible. That um, it cannot error. People can write things that error. That err. And so it is infallible in the sense that not only is it without mistake, but it cannot make mistakes. Okay. Of all saving knowledge. Now this is talking about the things that we must know in order to be saved. The Bible contains all the things we must know in order to be saved. And there are things that we must know. Would you agree? There are, the, the Bible is a book about knowledge. Things that people must know and confess in order to be saved. Now we recognise that not everything in the Bible must be known in order to be saved. You, know, you don't need to know kind of what happened to the ten tribes of Israel in order to be saved. But you, uh, the ten northern tribes, I didn't miscount there, sorry. The, but there are things that you must know. Right? There are, you have to know about Jesus. You have to know about the gospel. You have to know about the cross. You have to know about sin. You have to know about repentance. You have to know these things. You have to know about the triune God. Well, actually, that's an interesting question. Do you have to know about the Trinity to be saved? What do you reckon? Do you have to know, the, know about the Trinity to be saved? What do you think? Yes? I mean, I'm setting you up to fail. This is a trick question. Um, yeah, 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 it's a process. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But then there are people who, like, uh, let's speak to the John, second John, that um, there are people who cannot accept Jesus as um, God in flesh. So, mm-hmm. many people proclaim, they believe that they, Jesus is God, but I mean, they still believe that, that one, but they cannot take that, they cannot accept it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And even John was Jesus, they believe that Jesus is in existence. But yeah. not that. That's right. So would that damn them? I think it probably would, if they didn't believe that Jesus was God. Now, this is why I think it's a trick question. Um, there's, a, there's a sense in which you must believe the Trinity to be saved. There's a sense in which that's true. Uh, but there's also a sense in which it's not true. So, for example, did the thief on the cross believe in the Trinity? Right? Probably not. Did the thief on the cross reject the Trinity? No. So I think this is the key distinction to be made. There are things that you must know to be saved, which the thief on the cross knew. He knew he was a sinner. He knew Jesus was the saviour. He knew those two things. He was saved. Then there are things that you must not reject in order to be saved, if you have been told about them. Uh, The Trinity would be one. So I think when um, the... uh, So ignorance can be forgiven, but rejection can't. Does that make sense? So I think when the confession says, uh, this confession, or the scripture contains all saving knowledge, I think it is assuming um, 
that second category. It's assuming uh, after you've read the Bible and understood its doctrine, um, the things that you uh, it contains the things that you must not reject. Okay. Um, even if you might be new in the faith and not understand them fully, the scriptures contain the saving knowledge that must be not rejected. Make sense? Okay. Um, all, uh, so it's the all saving knowledge, all saving faith. It is that which must be believed. It cannot simply be known. It cannot simply be understood. It must be believed. So the scripture contains all saving knowledge and all saving faith. We need to know it. We need to believe it. And all saving obedience. We need to submit to it. We can't just know it and believe it. We have to obey it. We have to submit to it. So that's what that opening statement is telling us. The scripture is sufficient. It does not err and it cannot err. And it contains everything you must know, must believe and must submit to. That's the opening statement of the confession. That's a good statement, right? We'll leave it there. We'll get to the rest of the paragraph next week and we'll probably finish the chapter next week dealing with the necessity of Scripture. Okay, any questions? Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we think about this, um, this paragraph and this doctrine, Lord, we recognise that it has a special connection to you because your word is so precious and because you live within your word and you speak to us through it because when we pick it up and we read it, you're present and you minister to our souls through it and you teach us what we must know and believe and obey. Lord, we thank you that you have given us this all-sufficient, certain and infallible rule of faith. May we treasure it for what it is. In Jesus' name, amen.